And so if you would turn to 2 Peter chapter 1, and if you would stand with me as I read for you verses 5 through 9. 2 Peter chapter 1 verses 5 through 9. Hear the word of the Lord. Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence knowledge, and in your knowledge self-control and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. So ends the reading of God's word. May we be blessed as we study it together. You may be seated. How many of you like tests? You just can't wait to take a test. Apart from a, a handful of rather strange ones in this group, Many of us recoil at the thought of tests. When the doctor says she wants to run a test, we panic. The student who is told that there's a big test coming up next week panics. We often have a bad view of tests. We forget that the general purpose of a test is not to demean us. Rather, it is to reveal to us that which we know or do not know. It is a helpful tool to take a test. When I was in junior high school, I had an over-exuberant math teacher. She gave, a class, she gave the class a test, and the test consisted of 100 mathematical terms, including definitions that everyone was to learn before we would move on. She informed us that if we did not spell every mathematical term correctly and did not give her exactly, precisely the definition that she gave, that we would fail the test and we would come back the next day and take it again. I cannot tell you how many people failed the test. Not just once, not just twice, but three, four, or more times. Now, I didn't really get it, because in my way of thinking, it was one of the easier tests that I could take. Why? Because all the answers were right in front of me. All I had to do was look and learn and then regurgitate. I can do that. As we come to 2 Peter 1, verses 8 and 9, I want to submit to you that we're looking at a test of sorts, a test by which we are to evaluate something of great importance. We are to evaluate the very nature of our faith. 2 Corinthians 13.5, we have a very familiar exhortation by the Apostle Paul. We've heard this many times in this church, but Paul writes what? Test yourselves to see if you are where? In the faith, examine yourselves, or do you not recognize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you what? Fail the test. 
Well, this command of Paul is straightforward enough. Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. And while we can go back and look in the context of 2 Corinthians, Paul here, apart from the, the part of the test that is to know that Jesus Christ is in you, doesn't give us any real specific means by which to measure the test. Is Christ in me? Well, how do I measure that? But that's not so in our Second Peter text. Second Peter parallels very nicely here, verses 8 and 9, because it's kind of the, the, the answers to the very test that Paul says we ought to take. And so like my junior high math teacher, Peter has laid out for us all the answers to the test. I love those kinds of tests when you know exactly what's going to be on it. In verses 5 through 7, recall, Peter laid out for us what it is believers are to be cultivating, developing, being diligent, that is applying maximum effort to see that these qualities are being exhibited in their lives, not because of themselves, but because of the faith that God had given them. They include, by way of reminder, moral excellence, the very virtue and moral behavior of Christ while he walked on this earth. It includes knowledge, and we spoke there of the very practical working knowledge, kind of what do you need to know to walk with Jesus? We spoke of self-control, the keeping and looking, uh, locking down of attitudes and desires and the deeds of the flesh that like to rear their ugly heads if we do not walk by the Spirit. We spoke of perseverance, a time-tested steadfastness, staying true to Christ even when the times are difficult. We spoke of godliness, the pursuit and practice of all that which pleases our God. We spoke of brotherly kindness, a genuine and reciprocal affection for other believers, regarding them as family. And then we spoke of love, that one-way unconditional act of the will, that seeks the highest good for another, regardless of the cost, and all for the glory of God. Beloved, these seven qualities are the answers to the test that we can glean out from Peter's text here. And so, if these are the answers, we need to know something else. What is the question? What are the questions that need to be answered? And ultimately, I submit to you, verses 8 and 9 re represent the test where we find the questions that are to be answered, and the answers are found back in verses 5 through 7. So then, in our quest to cultivate Christian character, let us note from verses 7 and 8 two thoughts today. One is the blessing that comes from cultivating a Christian character, and the second will be the burden that comes from not cultivating the Christian character. And so let's begin with our first point, the blessing of cultivating Christian character. We begin with the blessing. Here is the test by which we can evaluate how we are doing in this quest. How do I know that I'm striving to be a Christian? How can I know that I'm becoming more Christ-like? And not just me, but how can others around me see these truths? Peter writes in verse 8, For if these qualities, the ones in verses 5 through 7, are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. The test here is twofold. You ready? Here are the questions. First, do I possess these qualities? 
do I possess these qualities? And the second, are these qualities that I possess, are they increasing? How's that for a simple test? I wish they were all that easy, but this isn't always that easy, is it? Peter's desire and his expectation upon his readers is that they be giving evidence of an abundant growth in Christian character. It is not, he's not desirous of weak and mediocre Christianity. It's as if he's saying, enough of this. If Christ be in you, let him manifest himself through you. And so let us consider these two questions. And the first questions, of course, are these qualities yours? Is moral excellence and knowledge and self-control and perseverance and godliness and brotherly kindness and love, do you, believer, professing believer, are these your possession? Notice that the text begins with these things, for if these things, these qualities, and it does take us back to verses 5 through 7, those seven characteristics that we are to be adding by our way of diligence and choreographing by means of our lives. And so the first test question is, are these things yours? Meaning, do they belong to you? These are possessions that every believer has. Not one believer lacks these qualities. If you are in Christ, these are yours. These are the rightful part of your walking with Christ. And so the question is, do you possess these things? Because if you don't, we'll see the burden in just a moment. While I presented this as a test by which you and I are to ask ourselves, do, do I possess these things? I would have you see Peter's expectation. For while in this text you'll notice it says, for if these, these things, for if these things. The Greek language there in the use of the word if is not a question at all. It is written in a way to suggest that, it, it, to, well, I guess to say it this way, we could translate it this way, for if these things are yours, and they are. Peter's not questioning these believers. He's making a statement of fact. If you are in Christ, has not God given you, granted you everything pertaining to life and godliness? Therefore, these things must be yours. We might translate this then, not if these things are yours, but since these things are yours. The verb are, are yours, is in the present tense. You presently, you currently, you continually, and will go on continually possessing these very traits. These are the possessions of those of the same faith as ours. Verse 1. Remember again, according to verse 3, God has granted to us what? Everything pertaining to life and godliness, including every manifestation of faith, the practice of these qualities. Beloved, those who possess these qualities, you ready for this? Will always pass the test. You need not worry if you pass the test. If you possess these things, you have passed. But notice that there is another question to the test. In addition to are these qualities yours, the second question is what? Are these qualities increasing? 
Are these qualities increasing in your faith? Are they becoming more and more evident in your life? For Peter, it is not enough for the believer to be able to say, yes, I have these qualities. I can go home. I'm, I'm all happy. I've got these things. In addition to having them, such qualities are to be increasing, a word that means to be abounding. Again, the verb are, are increasing, is in the present tense, reminding us that this is a process that we're going through. Every day we are to be growing in these expressions of our faith. I remember a friend whose parents had planted a lemon tree, and when they first planted it, it was like yay high, about not much, uh, almost the height I was back then. And I remember going out in that, the first season, and there was like six lemons on it this little tree trying to hang on to six lemons and I I lived there for a while so every year I'd go out and the tree got eventually taller than me and every year what happened there were more and more what lemons and it got so big once there were more lemons than they could even harvest there was lemons falling on the the ground it was that productive of a lemon tree This is the answer to the question, are these qualities increasing? Am I seeing more and more fruit from my faith? Do I see my moral excellence in Christ as I live by faith increasing? Am I increasing in this knowledge of Christ by which I can walk more closely with him? Do I see an increase in my self-control and my perseverance? This is the expectation of Peter for his readers. For since these qualities are yours and are increasing. This is to be the pastor's expectation for a congregation. This is to be the expectation of everyone who desires to cultivate Christian character. And I pray that if you are here this morning, it is because at some level you desire to go further in your relationship with Christ, not shrink away. How do you do it? Do you possess these qualities? And are they increasing? Beloved, have you grown accustomed to little or even no fruit? What fruit tree is useful if it's not producing fruit? May it never be. Peter says we are to be diligent, applying maximum effort to seeing these qualities manifest themselves because we possess them and they become increasingly abundantly in our lives. But why? Why should we possess these, and why should we desire to see them increasing? And it actually leads, if I could put it in these terms, to a bonus question. Here's the extra credit question. I loved the extra credit questions. I was a bit of a nerd, but I could get the extra credit questions and end up with a grade that was higher than even possible. How do you get 103%? You answer the bonus questions, okay? And what is the bonus question? What are the blessings of possessing and seeing this increasing of these qualities in your life? And Peter answers that question for us at the end of verse 8. He says that they, the possession and the increase of these qualities in your life, render you neither, two things, render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. What does it mean to be saved? What is eternal life? Jesus said it so distinctly in, uh, in his high priestly prayer in John 17, 3. This is eternal life that they may know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And so the idea of 
of coming to grow in these things, to possess and increase in these things guarantees there's a blessing, there's an assurance, there is spiritual growth. If you're not growing right now, it is because you may not be practicing these qualities, or it may be you do not possess these qualities. Now, the verb translated render, they render you neither useless. I was thinking about this word. We don't use the word render that much anymore, do we? What on earth does the word render mean? Well, to put it most simply, the verb render means to make. It can mean to constitute, but that's like render. I mean, what? Who, I don't run around and saying I'm constituting something. I might run around and say, Hey, I made something. I make, I'm making something. And so what is Paul saying, or Peter saying, if you have these increasing qualities, they make you something. And for some reason, Peter wants to stress this in the negative. They make you not something. I don't, you know, what what you can think of, what are the things you do not want to be? You could probably come up with a list of things that you do not want to be. Well, for Peter, here's the top of the list of the things you don't want to be. You don't want to be what? Useless. And and have you ever been told you're useless? Sometimes people come along, you're just useless. And you don't want to be unfruitful. You don't want to be a non-productive member of, of a family or a society or for sure not to be an unfruitful member of the body of Christ. And so we are not to be made useless or unfruitful. Now, we could flip it around. What does that mean? I like the positive, right? We're supposed to accentuate the positive. So it means that that if these things are yours and they are increasing, they render you what? Useful and fruitful. I like that. That's what I desire. Is that what you desire, to be useful and fruitful? It ought to be the desire of each and every one of us. Again, the verb render or make here is in the present tense. And so it's that's process. It's not just one time. I just don't, I, I don't come to the Lord and, and all of a sudden I made these things and I don't have to do this anymore. I'm continually make, the, these things are continually making me not useless and unfruitful, but useful and fruitful. Peter writes forcefully so that as long as you are positively engaged in these things, he says, you will not ever be useless and unfruitful. Now, what does it mean to be useless? Some of you may say, I know exactly what that means. I wake up in the morning and I feel, well, useless. Well, the word translated useless in our text actually speaks of that which is idle. It just sits there. We might say it's not working. It's like a car without keys. It's got all the parts. It looks nice. Everything's there. But it's not going anywhere. It's idle. It's not working. For Peter's readers, the word would have been understood as not speaking of someone who is unavoidably unemployed. Somebody who would want to work but simply doesn't have the work to do. Rather, the word would speak to them as somebody who is avoiding work altogether, avoiding the very work to which they have a responsibility to, go, to, to fulfill. And, and we know that, right? 
Why do you go to work some days when you don't feel like you want to go to work? Because you know it's your responsibility. You know you're providing for your family. This is a person who is putting off work so as to do nothing. In James 2.20, this word is used to describe a faith that fails to show itself in works. And it's translated as what? Dead. Faith without works is idle. It is not working. It is dead. For Peter, an idle, useless faith means by definition then an unfruitful faith. The word unfruitful in our text pictures a tree that remains without fruit even though it is in the most favorable of conditions. It is is going out to the lemon tree when it's lemon season and finding what? No fruit. And you ask yourself, why? There must be something wrong. A person who supposedly finds himself saying, hey, yes, God has granted everything to me pertaining to life and godliness, and yet it's not producing anything is a problem. That's a problem. And Peter says here that if you examine your faith and you see that these qualities are yours and increasing, then the very opposite of of this is true for you. Rather than useless and unfruitful, you are active and productive. These are the blessings of cultivating a Christian character. How do you want to know if your Christianity is on the right course? Are you active in your faith? Is your faith producing anything? Pretty simple answers. Peter even identifies for us now the sphere in which this activity and productivity are to grow. What is it supposed to be? Where is is it happening? And notice at the end of verse 8, it's in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Beloved, there is nothing greater than knowing Jesus. Apostle Paul again says, I want to know him. I want to know him. I want to share in his sufferings. I want to know him intimately. Peter tells us that the goal of all Christian activity, the goal of your Bible reading, the goal of your praying, the goal of coming to church, the goal of telling other people about Jesus, whatever is part and parcel of this life, the goal, he says, of the Christian life is to be found in or into the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Beloved, the aim of the Christian life is to be increasingly growing in the practical and intimate knowledge of Jesus. And we've said it before, and it's, here's an interesting way to, to take this test. Can you honestly evaluate your life and say, I know Christ better today than I did a year ago? Can you go back in a journal that you kept or or just go back and start writing out all the things that God has done for you? And can you say for certain that you know Christ better today than you did a year ago? You will notice that unlike the quality of simple, simply knowledge uh, that we saw in verses 5 through 6, we said that uh, uh, what we are to apply all diligence to our faith uh, in moral excellence and moral excellence, what? Knowledge. The knowledge there is gnosis in the Greek, that, that basic practical knowledge. But here it's entitled true knowledge. It's the same word that we saw back up in verses 2 and 3, and it means Uh, a a deep knowledge it is a deepening knowledge it's the idea idea of uh, applying layer after layer after layer of truth 
if you have ever memorized scripture, that's easy to do, right? You memorize scripture and you memorize verse one. And then on that top of that, you memorize verse two. And then you memorize verse three and you're putting layer upon layer upon layer of knowledge. That's the idea that Peter is conveying that if you are seeing these things manifest in your life, you can be certain that you are growing in depth with regard to who Jesus is and what he has done for you. Beloved at its core, these believers, or all believers, already possess this knowledge. It is part of that divine nature that we read about that's been bestowed upon them. But by its very nature, such a knowledge of Christ, and we could go around the room and say, what do you know about Christ? And we would list off all these different things. When would we get to the end? We might exhaust ourselves, but we would not get to the end of the knowledge of Christ. It can never fully be comprehended. Why can we never get to the end of Christ? For we're told in Colossians 2, 3, that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That's where we get to dig. That's what we get to plumb. That's where we spend our time. It sounds like there's a lot of things to know. And this is the one who saved my soul. This is the one who loved me while I was yet a sinner. And so why would I not desire to dig into knowing him? Beloved, the knowledge of Christ is both the root as well as the fruit of the Christian life. There, there are core truths concerning Christ that we all must believe that are necessary for us to live for Christ. We must believe in him. We must believe him to be the one who paid the price for our sin on the cross. But, beloved, there are even deeper truths concerning Christ that come as a result of daily walking with him. Why do you read your Bible? Oh, so I can tell everybody I've read my Bible. Why do I read my Bible? Make myself look good. Why do I read my Bible? Well, I want, to neg- I, get to, I want to get to know God better. I want to know Jesus more. Well, that's good, but really just to think in terms that you are plumbing the depths of the one who saved your soul. Beloved, let me say it this way. The best evidence a person can give of his or her knowing Christ is the pursuit to follow on to know him When you say, I know Christ, but I want to know him more, you're on a good course. If your life is kind of saying, well, I know enough and I don't need to move on, that's a stagnant faith. And you better get it corrected because you don't know if a stagnant faith is genuine faith at all because faith works. A a lazy indifference to or even disparaging of this kind of knowledge of Christ is antithetical. To say, I know, I mean, what do we say? The most simplistic aspect of the gospel, the most simple way of declaring the gospel is this. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Praise the Lord. I agree. But if that's where you want to stay, there's a problem. Because I want to plumb deeper into this knowledge of Christ. Such a, an indifference is diametrically opposed to what it means to be a Christian. 
We're seeking to be found in his image. We don't want to do anything, as we sang earlier, to profane this image of Christ that's being built within us. A Christian is one who knows Christ and pursues knowing Christ more deeply. A Christian is one who knows Christ and pursues knowing Christ more deeply. So then, again, the test is simple. And I ask you the questions. Do you currently possess and do you see as increasing the qualities listed for us in verses 5 through 7? If you do, then you are blessed. Blessed how? You are blessed by not being useless, unworking, idle, and you're blessed by not being unfruitful or dead with regard to spiritual growth. This is a blessing that is also a promise then for the believer who has these qualities and sees them increasing is useful and fruitful and he knows Christ more. Put another way, growing in Christ-likeness of which those seven qualities point to leads to better knowing Christ. Do you want to know Christ more? then diligently apply those qualities. As we experience all of those incredible uh, blessings that we have in Christ, as stated in verses 1 through 4, we have an opportunity to continue to grow in Christ. And the more that you grow in Christ, the more that you know Christ. And the more that you know Christ, the more you want to, where am I going? Grow in Christ. Beloved, before we moved on, there's a question that might arise at this point. A very practical question, how? How can I increase these qualities in my life? Uh, I, I mean, you're telling us to do this. Peter says to do this. How do we do this? Well, we find the answers to that. In fact, two answers to that back up in verse 5. I'll have you note these. Here's the application of our text. In verse 5, again, it says, for now, uh, for now, for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith supply, two means by which you can increase these qualities that bless us with activity and fruit for the Lord. And the first means is this, the call to be diligent. We spoke of that last week. That is the applying, the adding all maximum effort to the pursuit of these things. In other words, God calls you and me to do all that we can to cultivate these qualities in our lives. But what does this mean for us practically? What does it mean? Well, let me just give you a few. And for those of you trying to take notes, I, I pity you, okay? Cause, so just listen. If you want a copy of this on the transcript, uh, we'll get it figured out. We can cultivate moral excellence, which is Christ-likeness in our lives, by being, here you can write this down, more thankful, more joyful, and a more helpful person. Why do I say that? Jesus was always thankful. Jesus was always thankful, always joyful, not always happy, but always joyful, and he was always helpful in his dealings with others. And so, Peter says, be diligent in this, and so we can say, how do I cultivate this moral excellence? Well, 1 Thessalonians 5.18 says, in everything what? Give thanks. You want to increase in your moral excellence? Become a more thankful person. We are called to rejoice how often? 
always, 1 Thessalonians 5.16. We're even to rejoice in our trials, according to James 1.2. And we are to help one another, according to Galatians 6.10. And then, when we do those things, we have the blessing of seeing moral excellence increase in our life. We can cultivate knowledge of Jesus in our lives by praying without ceasing, 1 Thessalonians 5.17, by immersing ourselves in the word of God, 1 Peter 2.2, and by being a true learner of Jesus Christ, Matthew 28.19. We can cultivate self-control in our lives by how? By living consciously in the presence of God. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 13, it talks about the, the word of God being a living and active sword, and it pierces down to the very depths of our soul, and it exposes us before the one with whom we have to do. You want to cultivate self-control? Remember that God is watching you. We can develop self-control by, according to Luke 9, 23, denying ourselves, taking up our cross daily, dying to, to our desires and following Christ in his ways. We can cultivate perseverance in our lives by being accountable to one another. Galatians 6, 2 reminds us, bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. We develop perseverance by honoring our commitments, even when it's difficult according to 1 Corinthians 4.2, which says that there's only one thing required of a steward, that he be found faithful, trustworthy. And we can develop perseverance by keeping Christ, who is our prize, ever in front of us, that we forget what is behind and we press on for the upward call for the prize of Christ Jesus. We can cultivate godliness in our lives by actively pursuing God's will and his ways. When we say with Jesus, not my will, but your will be done. We can do it by intentionally and continually worshiping him according to Hebrews 13.5 that we're continually, continually offering up to him a sacrifice of praise. And we can pursue godliness by having a heart of compassion for others. We literally put on a heart of compassion. We cultivate brotherly kindness in our lives when we go out of our way to offer encouraging words to one another, not letting any unwholesome word come forth from our mouth, but only that which would edify according to the need of the moment. And we do it by pursuing acts of kindness towards one another. Titus chapter 3, verse 14, let our people learn to engage in good deeds to meet pressing needs. And beloved, we cultivate love in our lives by setting aside our own interests and considering others as more important than ourselves, Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4, and by sacrificially serving one another, which we read in 1 John three sixteen. Beloved, we all practice discipline in some form or another, do we not? I mean, you got here today. Congratulations. Discipline. Some are disciplined to exercise. Some are not. Some are disciplined when it comes to getting enough sleep. Some of us can't. Some are disciplined when it comes to eating. But regardless of what you are or are not disciplined in any area that you might be thinking in this moment, let me remind you that according to the word of God, every believer who has the same kind of faith as that of Peter is called to be disciplined for the purpose of godliness. 1 Timothy 4.17.
The person who is disciplined for the purpose of godliness has the blessing of knowing that he or she will never be useless or unfruitful in their understanding of Christ. But as each one of us knows, our own personal pursuit of applying all diligence in such things. I told you all these things. You're like, you're writing them down. Okay, I'm going to go home and I'm going to work on moral acts. And I'm going to do, I'm going to be diligent because that's what Peter said to do. And I'm, I commend you for that. But one thing we need to recognize, that our own personal pursuit of those things will never be enough to cause us to grow in godliness. If that's what you're depending upon yourself, you will fail. We are all harassed by residual sin that if left to our own selves, even the most diligent of us will fail. Therefore, in addition to being diligent to seeing these things played out so we can say since these qualities are mine and are increasing, in addition to being diligent for those things, Peter provides us a second means by which we see these things increase in our lives. And the second means is this. We've got to be trusting in the Lord. You must trust that the Lord intends this for you. Trusting the Lord, we must never forget where our spiritual growth ultimately comes from. It's not in me. It's in Christ. We are sanctified. We are made increasingly like Christ. We believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and we trust that the Lord will bring about what? The growth. This is the point Peter makes in verse 5 when he says, not only you applying all diligence, but in your, what? Your faith supply. What is your faith? Did you manufacture that faith? We know from our study just a couple of weeks ago in Ephesians 2, 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is what? The gift of God. Philippians 1.29 says, For to you it has been granted not only to believe on the Lord, but also to suffer for him. While we've been speaking of the seven qualities of Christian character found in verses 5 through 7, the ultimate point, beloved, is that there's only one key quality that, that overrides all of these things. You get lost in, in these seven and, and how they fit. We certainly want to look at them. But the ultimate quality that must be found in everyone who says, I'm a believer, is what? They must believe. They must have faith. They must be trusting in the Lord. Here is a truth that you need to consider. No one grows in Christ apart from faith in Christ. You will never grow in Christ apart from faith in Christ. It is our faith in Jesus that fuels all these qualities. Hebrews 11.5 reminds us without faith, it is what? Impossible to please God. Without faith, it is impossible to increase in moral excellence, to increase in knowledge, to increase in self-control and the like. So then if we would be increasing in the qualities of Christian character, what must we do? We must trust that God intends to manifest these things in and through us. And I think about that. And let me remind you that trusting in the Lord is hard work. Do you know that? How do I know that? The Bible tells me so. <laughs> Paul instructed Timothy to do what? To fight, to fight, 
the good fight of faith. If I could rephrase that, I think it would be legitimate to say, we must fight hard to believe in Christ. We must fight hard to continue to trust him. They are not just lyrics to a song. They are profound truth to sing the words prone to wander, Lord, I feel it prone to leave the God I love. We tend to set our hearts on the temporal. Some of us are asking, what's for lunch? Temporal. We see the here and now rather than looking to God and the eternal. We have a bent to be easily distracted by the happenings in our lives. Well, how do we deal with this? Peter's, or Paul says we must fight the good fight of faith, but how do you do that? You must look to God. You must call to God. You must trust that God intends to intervene in your life. And so we pray the words of that man from Mark 9.24. I do believe, but help my unbelief. Help my unbelief. In John 6, 28, the Pharisees asked a very intriguing question of Jesus. They asked this, What shall we do so that we may work the works of God? Isn't that where we find ourselves? What must we do to please God? What must we do to be found as these people who are on God's team and God's side? And we look to attain something from God. They were insistent on knowing what they could do to be what? Useful and fruitful to God. And then Jesus throws the proverbial curveball at them. I mean, what, it's a simple question, right? What must we do? Well, let me tell you, you got to do A, B, and C and list all these things out. And what does Jesus come back? He says this in verse 29. This is the work of God. Oh, this is good. He's about to answer our question. I'm ready for the list. I've got my pen out. This is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. What? That's it? This is the work of God, that you trust who God has sent to you that you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, that you understand there's nothing that you can do. We must believe. Fight the good fight. To fight the good fight is to believe in the Lord. We must believe that he intends for this fruit of faith, these qualities to be evident and growing in our lives. We must believe that he intends to bring all of these things to pass. And I'm sitting here saying, okay, God, here I am. I'm ready. It is Isaiah in Isaiah 6. Here I am, Lord. Send me. Only now we're saying, here I am, Lord. Let me see you manifest these things in my life. I believe that you're ready to do it I will pursue them but apart from you what do what am I able to do so we believe that we apply all diligence but we also believe that he's the one who is working these things out is this not what the Lord Jesus reminded his disciples in John 15 verses 4 and 5 oh these are familiar words but hear them as though you have never heard them before 
Jesus says, abide in me, live in me, dwell in me, and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides or remains in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears not might bear, he bears much fruit, for apart from me, you can do what? You need to get that into your head. It is to be somewhat of a, of a, a reminder, I, I hate to use the word mantra, but some kind of reminder, God, I am here today by your grace, remind me that I can do nothing apart from Christ. Nothing will please you apart from Christ. Stop and ponder that for a moment. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Answer the question I've already asked you. What can you do apart from Christ? Nothing. Absolutely, positively, irrevocably, unalterably, nothing. No thing. This tells us that all the diligence And all the hard work and all the discipline we might ever muster is ultimately useless when it comes to cultivating a life of godliness if, if it's by itself. And so a reminder on two things. If you're depending upon your ability to make yourself godly, you will fail. If you think God will make you godly without any effort on your part, you will fail. You apply all diligence, and then you trust the Lord to bring it about. Clear enough? Beloved, only as we, the branches, are connected to the vine, who is Christ, do we have the hope, do we have the power to live a godly life. It is only as we trust that the Lord has called us to these things and has promised, ordained these things. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he himself prepared in advance. He ordained it, so now walk in them. The Lord is intent on seeing these things accomplished in our lives, and part of that is being diligent, disciplined, and hardworking to see these things so in your life. Beloved, these qualities to which we are called to possess and increase are not the result of our self-abilities and our talents, and they're certainly not part of our own self-sufficiency. While they are a matter of our applied diligence, they are not within our power to perform. We cannot change ourselves or conform ourselves into the image of Christ. We must believe that God not only wants to see these things worked out in our lives, but that he has promised to work them out in our lives. Being confident of this very thing, that he who began the good work in us will carry it on to completion. It is God who is at work in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And so if these qualities would be ours and would be increasing, let us be both diligent in our pursuit of them and let us be trusting in the Lord to make them so. That is the blessing of cultivating Christian character. Now there's one second and final point, not too long, and that's the burden of not cultivating Christian character. You say, well, that all sounds like a lot of work to me. I don't know if that's where I'm at. Well, let's just look at verse 9 very quickly and notice what Peter writes here. 
For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Now, I have to admit that this was not the easiest verse to look at. And why is that? There's a lot of debate about this particular verse. Why is there debate? Because there's a debate. Is he writing to Christians that are living less than, uh, less than up to their potential, or is he writing about unconverted, unregenerate people who have made a profession? And one of my problems was so many of my, my most trusted preachers and commentators said, well, he's really writing to, uh, uh, un, uh, to believers who are just missing the mark. Well, in my own study, I was not convinced, and so I wrestled with this. And I came to believe that this is speaking of professing unconverted people. And let me tell you why. First, I'd have you notice that Peter does something incredible in verse 9. In verses 1 through 8, it has been, he's used both uh, uh, the first person plural pronouns, us and we, uh, and ours. And then he's also said you and yours, the second person plural. And now all of a sudden, unlike anything else he's written, in verse 9, he uses the third person singular, he and his. Then in verse 10, he goes back and he calls them brethren. And he goes back to the second person plural, you. Clearly, it indicates to us that Peter has someone or someones else in mind than his readers in this verse. In the context of the letter, it appears that Peter would be thinking in this moment of false teachers, false professors of the faith. They've made a profession. They've said, I believe. They've said, I, I have faith in Jesus. But there's been nothing to back it up. And their teaching has gone off the rails. And Peter's going to address these kinds of people in chapter 2. And so he's setting the stage for us right now. These are people who have received, uh, who have made a profession of having received the saving gospel. And yet their lives demonstrate no adherence and no connection to the qualities that Peter says are to be the possession of those of faith. I submit to you that this verse is a warning that if you do not see the seven qualities of verses 5 through 7 in your life, then it is time to repent. It is time to make a course correction, lest you suffer the consequences of eternal punishment, and Peter will pick that up again in chapter 2. These are people who fail the test. Another reason why this appears to be speaking of a person who has made an empty profession of faith in Christ is found in the verb of verse 9. Notice what it says, for he who lacks these qualities. The verb lacks, again, is in the present tense. It means they are presently lacking, and they're just always lacking. The word lack literally means, you ready for this, not present. It means not to be here. Some of us can feel like that when we show up someplace. I'm not really here. But it means not to be here, not to be present. We can tr safely translate this as to say, he to whom these things are not present. Peter does not regard his readers to be in this condition. How do we know that? Because if he thought for a moment that one of his readers or some of his readers were in this condition, he would have written it more along the lines, for those of you who lack this quality, these qualities, he does not say that. 
Remember verse 8? More rightly says, for since the qual these qualities are yours and are increasing, and now he says in verse 9, what? For, uh, for he who lacks these qualities. This is a stark contrast, folks, between the saved and the unsaved, between those who have working faith and those who have a dead faith, between those who are fruitful and those who are fru uh, fruitless. Peter describes the faithless person in this text, surprisingly, in just one word. Now, the English kind of messes this up for us, but there's just one word by which he describes them, and that is the word blind. The adjective blind, or blind is the adjective to the subject, he who lacks, this person is blind. And then he goes on to describe blindness by two ways. So let's look at this very quickly. First, he says he's blind. That's the key description of the, this particular person. While the word literally means not being able to see or to see correctly, figuratively, it describes this person's moral and spiritual condition. They're blind. They're unable to consider the things of God. This one fails the test. They lack the spiritual qualities of, of verses 5 through 7. They can't see them. This the, it is the man who doesn't have the spiritual mind, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. This leads to two further descriptions of his blindness. It is described as being short-sighted. Now, if you have the NASB 95, like I'm reading from, you'll notice that there's a little supplied word. It's or. He is blind or short-sighted. Doesn't that sound weird? How can you be? You're either blind or you're short-sighted. Uh, it's hard to be both. Why? Well, I, I mean, I guess you could argue that there's both, but I'm going to uh, let you know something, that when you read those italic words, those are supplied words in the text that kind of help the English read a little bit better at times. Sometimes I wish they wouldn't supply those words. You can simply read it without the words, and I encourage you to do that. For he who lacks these qualities is blind, short-sighted, having forgotten his former purification from his sins. By using blind, Peter is stating that this person's moral and spiritual state is they have no eyes for spiritual truth. And then he goes on to describe this person's condition by saying they are short-sighted. In the Greek, it's the word myopic, and it means seeing what is only what is near. We would say nearsighted. This is a person who is so short-sighted, so nearsighted, that all they can see is the earthly realm around them, he, that he is blind to spiritual qualities. He's blind to the spiritual manifestations of Peter that Peter describes in verses 5 through 7. He can only see earthly, temporal things. Now, some of you may not know this, but I am, I, am, I think, the poster child to nearsightedness. You say, well, how do you know that? I'm wearing contacts right now. You see me wear these things. But in the morning, when I don't want to disturb my wife and I think I'm going to check my text messages and my emails, I am so nearsighted that I have to close one eye and I'll look at my phone with one other eye and it's about this close to my face. So I can read like this. Now when I do that, I can't see anything else in the room. I, it, I am so focused on that one thing. And that, beloved, is the picture. This person can't see anything else because with regard to, the, to spiritual things, they are beyond them. They're so focused on that one earthly thing, they see nothing 
else. They cannot perceive their need of spiritual, these spiritual qualities in their life. But they're not only short-sighted, they're also forgetful. Peter's second description is that the spiritually blind person has forgotten his purification from his former sins. Now, this one's a little bit tough because it's easy it may be easy to look at this person as uh, maybe this is a person who's lost their salvation, right? Uh, but the Bible doesn't teach that that is possible. This description could be problematic because it sounds like they, they've fallen away from, from true belief. But the phrase having forgotten literally means forgetting having received. It can speak of suffering from, uh, if we want to put it in these terms, a spiritual amnesia. And I believe that the point Peter is making is that the person who neglects to cultivate spiritual qualities, as found in verses 5 through 7, is ultimately blind to the truth of God's word. Such a person is able to only see earthly things, but even upon hearing of heavenly truths, they're sitting in a church right now, and they're hearing spiritual truths. They're hearing of the gospel, but they forget what all of that means. So they hear the gospel call to be washed clean of their sins. And in the moment, because they are all about what's right in front of them, they may, they may respond. But when other things in life get right up in their face, they forget those truths. And those truths never take root. I believe it's the parable of the sower in Matthew 13, 20, where Jesus said, And the one on whom the seed, the gospel, was sown among thorns, this is the man who hears the word, and the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, and it becomes, what does Jesus say? Unfruitful. Part of Peter's point will be to grant assurance of salvation to those who truly believe that God is at work in their faith. And here Peter describes those who fail to see the fruit of God in their lives. If you're failing to see God at work in your life, you have no assurance of faith whatsoever. And while a lack of assurance cannot, does not necessarily mean you are not saved, it is something that you most definitely need to be corrected. To be sure, there are some here who have had a moment of what might have seemed to be spiritual cleansing. Some of you may have been baptized, believing yourself to be cleansed from your sins at that time. Some of you prayed a prayer and, and walked an aisle some time ago asking for the Lord's forgiveness. It may be at one point you made a break from your sin, but you have found yourself now once again in that sin or even worse sins. Perhaps such a condition is simply the result of of spiritual neglect, perhaps, but according to the text, what does it say? If these qualities are lacking in your life, it would indicate that you simply have no spiritual life at all. You are still dead in your trespasses and sins. The best plant we have in our house is this wonderful, real-looking, fake plant. That's because we have cats, and cats like to eat plants, so we can't have any live plants. But this fake plant, that's, that's what he's saying. You're a fake plant. You look pretty, and from a distance it looks gorgeous, but when you get up, there's no organic material at all. You're just plastic. It's just fake. You are useless and fruitless. 
And beloved, whether you are here today and you think your faith is genuine but sickly, or your faith is not faith at all, your condition is not good. Jesus stands ready to condemn you. If you were to die today, you would die eternally. But as we sang earlier, Jesus also stands ready to save you. If you will turn to him, if you will look to him, if you will plead with him to implant in you a true faith, a faith that works, a faith through whom God works to see moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. If anyone finds that they are lacking these things this morning, it is time to hear these words calling you to repentance. It is time to think back on those truths that you have heard before, but you seem to continually forget. Do not forget what took place on the cross of Christ. Do not forget that he paid for the sins of all those who would believe on him. Do not forget that if you are in Christ, you are holy and blameless. Do not forget the purpose of the death of Christ, as Peter stated in 1 Peter 2.24. And he himself, Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Beloved, you need not bear the burden of lacking these qualities of Christian character any longer. Today is the day to receive them. Let today be the day you rejoice in the blessing of being neither useless or nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. We know that God's goal for his people is their sanctification. Therefore, let us be, as God's people, those who pursue sanctification, without which, according to Hebrews 12, 14, if there is no sanctification, if there is no qualities that are being produced, you will not see the Lord. By faith, let us experience the blessings of cultivating Christian character rather than experiencing the burden of being spiritually blind. Let me close in prayer, and as we do, we will prepare ourselves for the receiving of the Lord's table. And I just want to give a a, a warning. The scriptures are clear that the partaking of the Lord's table are for those who believe, for those who can say, "I, I, I am seeing God at work in me. If you doubt for even a moment, if you doubt that you are walking with the Lord or that you even know the Lord, the Bible is clear that by partaking of these elements now, you are bringing judgment, further judgment upon yourself. And so I plead with you, rather than receive elements that are meaningless to you and only bringing you judgment, that you would cry out to the Lord and say, Lord, help me receive the Lord Jesus Christ. Help me believe and let me begin a journey with him. And I pray that you would do that and that you would come talk to me afterwards. If you are a genuine believer, then then rejoice and partake of this time, remembering what Christ has done for you. Don't forget, but remember. Don't despair, but rejoice that he has saved your soul and he has given you faith to believe. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for the time of study in this particular text and a reminder that there are so many blessings for those of us who are in Christ and that blessing is to see the increase 
of the manifestations of the faith that you have granted worked out in our lives. May that be so. Father, we, we pray that even though we might find ourselves weak in some of these areas, that we will look to you, that we will apply diligence, and that we will trust that you will see these things manifest and increase in our lives. And Father, we do pray for those who need to bow the knee to Christ, to confess with their mouth that he is Lord, and believe in their heart that you, God, raised him from the dead as the only satisfying atonement, the only satisfying payment for their sins. Father, may today be the day of salvation. Now bless our time around the Lord's table as we partake together. May it be that which brings you uh, honor, and may it be that which delights our hearts, we ask in Jesus' name.